0: episode 54 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending May 26, 2017, the Rubber Match Edition. This week, Jay and I have a wide-ranging discussion on some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories. We discuss uh, the recently concluded Compliance Week 2017 conference. We talk about the uh, surprising poll taken at the conference, which uh, showed a very uh, much lower readership of the department of justice evaluation of corporate compliance programs than uh, people would have thought uh, of a poll taken by attendees at a compliance conference. Jay recaps the SEC San Francisco event he attended last week. Uh, We talk about the individual enforcement action against the MoneyGram Chief Compliance Officer, whether it's significant or much ado about nothing. We hit a highlight, an article by Sam Rubenfeld in the Wall Street Journal. Risk and Compliance Journal, which uh, discusses the uh, upcoming event that the Department of Justice will embed prosecutors overseas. And we have a lengthy discussion uh, from the compliance perspective and sporting perspective on the NBA championship between the Golden State Warriors and Cleveland Cavaliers, who for the first time, we will have three consecutive years of the same teams in the NBA Finals. Also, I have an announcement of the release of my new book, 2016, The Year in FCPA Corporate Enforcement. So I hope you will uh, check it out and perhaps even buy a copy. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA Episode 54 for the week ending May 26, 2017, the Rubber Match Edition. I'm, as always, joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome.
1: Hey, Tom. Uh, Good to speak with you and uh, anxious to hear about what you learned and who you uh, heard speak uh, this past week at Compliance Week in D.C.
0: Well, you know, Jay, that's a great uh, start and intro to this week's uh, episode. Why don't we just dive into it? Uh, As you correctly noted, I was at Compliance Week 17 um, annual conference. It was uh, one truly for the record books. We had uh, over 660 attendees, which is uh, by far the uh, largest number. We had uh, a series, uh, rather a large number of uh, new, a larger number of vendors exhibiting and new vendors who had previously not been at Compliance Week, and indeed some I had not seen at any compliance conference, so it was very exciting uh, for that uh, reason, Jay, and um, the presentations were, uh, as always, just sterling. I was able to chair a panel of Ren McEachern and Kara Brockmeyer, which was extraordinarily interesting, uh, talking about FCPA enforcement. We really focused over the past year um, where Karen kind of gave her perspective as, of course, former head of the FCPA unit, Wren's head of the FCPA unit. For uh, investigative unit for the, FC, uh, excuse me, the FBI, so that was uh, always good to hear uh, his his perspective. I even got him to talk about some of the differences in approaches. So I asked him, for instance, you know, what's the best uh, best practice program from the FBI's perspective? What's uh, extraordinary cooperation from the FBI's perspective as opposed to perhaps the Department of Justice and uh, Securities and Exchange Commission? So. Um, Many of the themes that they uh, uh, talked about were themes that uh, were important in 2016. Uh, They're important now and are going to be important in the future, Uh, and we'll talk about those throughout the podcast. So um, I also was on a breakfast panel with my uh, Compliance Week colleague, Joe Mont, uh, chaired by our our editor-in-chief, Bill Coffin, where we talked about Trump the first 100 days. Joe writes... uh, He's a business journalist uh, centered in Washington or or domiciled and headquartered in Washington, and he uh, writes and talks about the regulatory aspect of things. So he had some really uh, interesting insights and comments from his journalism perspective. And, of course, I talked about uh, compliance, the FCPA, and the things that uh, you and I have visited on most recently in our um, Everything Compliance podcast on Trump's first 100 days. So that was a lot of fun. Also on uh, Monday, the opening day, the opening keynote was a futurist, um, Dr. Brian Johnson, who heads the ThreatCast Institute at Arizona State University. Apparently this is a, uh, academic, uh, an approved academic uh, um, uh, discipline, and he talked about uh, what a futurist does is they look a minimum of 10 years out. So it was a very interesting talk about really the future of compliance. Now, he did talk about cybersecurity and you know some of those issues, but he had a, a really interesting phrase. He talked about industrial-grade artificial intelligence, and he said that will be is just the uh, – it's not a big blue kind of IBM, big, uh, big blue deep learning or deep thinking. It's how companies and businesses are going to use tech and artificial intelligence going forward. So um, I thought that was a really interesting insight. And the thing I think is most significant for not only you and I, Jay, but for all of our listeners is he believes that the uh, innovations coming in technology and artificial intelligence will actually make the compliance discipline, the chief compliance officer and the compliance practitioner, more important going forward. And it was basically because at the rate and speed that you can look at data and uh, make decisions based upon data, you're going to have to have a nimble and agile compliance function that can both guide the business and its decision-making calculus, but also be there uh, to quickly do the same analysis on oversight for data that comes into the compliance realm. So uh, certainly good, uh, good words and good thoughts for our profession going forward. Um, and the necessity for compliance, he talked about compliance being integrated into the business function. Uh, the Department of Justice, of course, says that is the uh, operationalization of compliance. So it's interesting how he moved those two together. Um, the second day, we had an opening keynote, uh, which was a panel, and it had on the panel, um, Kara Brockmire, uh, as I said, former head of the FCPA unit, Kurt Drake, who is the, currently the chief compliance officer at Kimberly Clark, but people might recognize that name as he was the chief compliance officer at General Cable who got them through their FCPA enforcement action. And then uh, uh, Pablo uh, Quinones, uh, chief of strategy and policy and training unit in the criminal division's fraud section. And with the panel was moderated by former SEC practitioner Stephen Cohen. And that was uh, really interesting, and I know there was one point uh, you wanted to, uh, to talk about uh, that came up that was really not uh, directly related to their remarks, Jay, but they were doing live polling. And the poll was about the uh, Department of Justice, FCPA, evaluation of corporate compliance programs documents. So maybe you could just kind of pick it up from there.
1: Sure. So uh, they took a poll of 175 compliance professionals who were at the conference, and it showed that at least half, 50 percent, had not read the guidance released by the DOJ in February. So uh, that seems to be kind of like a shocking number, especially when you have all those um, bright minds from the FCPA and ethics and compliance world there. So what was there a a palpable gasp in the room or what was the reaction like in there, Tom?
0: Well, uh, what was interesting, Jay, was uh, certainly the reaction of um, Pablo Pablo Quinones. I hope I haven't butchered his last name too badly. Uh, He was uh, I think he just said, wow, wow. Something like that. And uh, I think it really struck everybody in the room uh, simply because this was a, now this was not a, you know, a scientifically designed poll. It was only went out to probably 600 people who were in the room. So a third only, and less than a third responded. Uh, So I hate to make uh, overarching um, uh, statements based upon that limited sample size. So basically, I guess that's about, 80 or 90 or 95 uh, people who hadn't read it. But still, you would think in a compliance-related event, uh, those people would have uh, paid attention to the latest and greatest pronouncements from the Department of Justice. Uh, Where I'm left standing is um, the Department of Justice has issued at no charge to anyone publicly Uh, available—did I mention it was free— a document on what they think and the questions they will ask of you about your compliance program if you come in front of them through an enforcement action. The um, questions are laid out in a a structured format, basically around the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, and uh, they allow you to self-test your own uh, and even self-audit your own compliance program around the issue of operationalization so why you would not look at it or even read it is is really just uh stunning uh to me to to have that uh that number so um it was uh interesting uh Wei Chen uh the uh, Department of Justice Compliance Council was there she had some uh, some remarks um uh, around the um evaluation of corporate compliance program documents uh all in all uh, the panel was very interesting uh, it also, uh, Kurt Drake had some really interesting comments about how uh, he actually did uh, operationalize his compliance program, and he used data in a way that uh, I think is is shows where data is going. It's not that General Cable had data. But they actually took the data, learned from it, and took those lessons and incorporated those in an ongoing basis into their compliance program for continuous improvement. And he said that – he felt that was very persuasive to demonstrate the effectiveness of the general cable compliance program. So um, very interesting uh, really around uh, those two keynotes,
1: Jay. So um, I I think in in the uh, recap you wrote about – Dr. Brian David Johnson, although he talked about these uh, leaps that are being made in terms of AI, he also seemed to indicate that there's there's still a considerable lag before this stuff comes to the marketplace. Uh, in terms of the new vendors that you saw at Compliance Week, is there anybody who seems to be getting a little bit closer to this that you met?
0: You know, I really didn't see uh, anyone um, who was talking – Uh, five years down the future yet. Uh, What uh, we heard from several vendors were that they can help you collect the the data and after collect it, then run it through um, and analyze the data. But the step of then taking that same data and looping it back in uh, on an ongoing basis for continual improvement, uh, I don't think we heard uh, any vendors really talking about that, nor did we hear them talking about how... The, uh, As Matt Kelly would say, the data about the data would not only help operationalize your compliance program, but also uh, really put more focus on the need for a nimble uh, compliance program, compliance discipline, and chief compliance officer going forward. So really, uh, the, the market was not there yet. He was truly looking down the road into the future.
1: So I guess the future that he sees, would we call that compliance 4.0? Um,
0: we might we might begin, uh, might begin to do that.
1: Uh, one last bit. Uh, anything specific uh, from Kara that she brought up either with um, what she's going to be doing going forward at DeBA Voice or any interesting reflections she, she had upon leaving the SEC.
0: Um, really nothing, uh, really going forward about devil voice. Um, what, uh, the great thing about moderating one of these is uh, you get to ask the questions you want answers to. So, uh, when the audience kind of lags, I get to ask my, my questions. And what I really wanted to talk to her about was the internationalization of not only FCPA investigations, but FCPA enforcement. And that's something that she talked publicly about last fall at the ACI National FCPA Conference in Washington. So I really got her to talk about some of the steps that not only uh, she took, specifically at the SEC, but task force she was on to help train prosecutors and investigators from other countries and other jurisdictions. She talked about coming to uh, the United States, or uh, they put on boot camps, the SEC and DOJ put on boot camps here in the United States. And she talked about the most recent one, which I think was, either in the fall or summer of 2016, and she said that the the folks from uh, countries outside the U.S. had really progressed to the point where the U.S. was not leading the discussion. They weren't leading panels. They were moderating panels, and they had um, investigators and prosecutors from other countries talking about their best practices as a way for— you know Americans to, to gain knowledge from. So I thought that was a really interesting, and it ties into certainly uh, some of the themes that I said we wanted to talk about here. And, and what I saw was a key theme from 2016 was this internationalization of not just investigations, but enforcement. Wren talked about, he tied it into the amount of work the F- FBI does overseas. The FBI has agents in a wide variety of countries focusing on uh, corruption and bribery, uh, London, uh, West Africa, Central Asia. I mean, he just went through a list of of uh, countries, and and then he said, and you know, if there are major American business interests in a company country, you can better believe the FBI is going to be interested in uh, Brazil. Of course, uh, was one of those as well. So it truly showed the international aspect of this and how important it is, um, kind of going forward. So, Jay, the, um, the next thing I wanted to uh, see about uh, was an, a really interesting article by our good friend and colleague, Sarah Croft. Sarah is in uh, – or writes, rather, on the Grand Jury blog, and it's around the MoneyGram CCO uh, prosecution. This was a prosecution of a chief compliance officer, and so um, – I um, in many in the compliance uh, field were a little bit worried about um, what uh, this might mean. And uh, Sarah really wrote, uh, I thought, a pretty good uh, summary of the um, enforcement action against the chief compliance officer, uh, let's see if I can get that name for you, Mr. Thomas hater H-A-I-D-E-R, and he settled civilly with uh, the government. Um, I think Sarah's uh, kind of the key point was that there was no willful action by uh, the chief compliance officer, but there may have been willful blindness. And uh, I think that the um, government made clear uh, when MoneyGram settled for $100 million that uh, obviously something had gone off the rails. So it's um, perhaps not too surprising to have this uh, individual uh, enforcement action. Nevertheless, this was the first one which moved to uh, conscious indifference of a chief compliance officer. The conscious indifference was uh, there were uh, multiple instances where uh, fraud uh, involving uh, money sent through MoneyGram's uh, money transfer system was articulated and even put um, put in spreadsheets and information put forward to the chief compliance officer. A plan was put in place but not implemented Due to push back from the sales department to uh, terminate agents and outlets because of fraud or anti money laundering concerns. Um, so, uh, also, the time frame was 03 to 08, and frankly, that was a different time in a different era. So, it's not clear um, really, or rather, I should say, it is clear we didn't have direct CCO involvement. Nevertheless, uh, we did have uh, perhaps uh, willful uh, blindness going forward.
1: There's a couple things that uh, she closes with, and she says, uh, uh, "In the end, this case shouldn't scare the compliance community too much. The government obviously wanted to put compliance officers to fear that if the company compliance plan isn't perfect, isn't perfect they are personally liable. Now, two hundred fifty thousand is not insignificant, but it's also not a prohibitively high penalty." The government got one quarter of what it wanted in fines in a three year bans, but that's not exactly a bang the drums result in a first of its kind case. It will be interesting to see if the government follows up on its bluster. If it does, it should look for a better test case. So, this is uh, I, my takeaway is kind of like uh, some of the prosecutions that we had uh, four or five years ago, especially with, um, you know, uh, Shore shot and those things that the government really uh, needs to be very um, – they need to be choosy about which cases they're bringing forward to, to trial or to settlement. And um, from Sarah's perspective, I don't think she was very excited about the result on this one.
0: Jay, uh, I would agree with not only her analysis uh, and your points, but I would uh, note that this is, I think, the first time we've seen a uh, either – Criminal or civil uh, penalty, and this was under the Bank Secrecy Act, not the FCPA, or um, uh, so it was anti money laundering. But we are the first time I think we'd seen a chief compliance officer uh, significantly sanctioned, and I have to say I find $250,000 to be a significant sanction um, for willful blindness. Now, this is separate and apart from active uh, actively being involved in the, uh, a compliance failure. And as Mike Volkoff would tell us, that certainly would, uh, warrant CCO, uh, prosecution if it, if it existed. But here we had basically, it looks like somebody who put his head in the sand. Now, it, they did, uh, design a program to try to remediate, but it was overruled by the sales department. That sounds like to me to be a structural defect in the, in the company. I'm not sure a chief compliance officer could have impacted that, even if they resign, uh, it still is not solving the problem. So uh, the last thing is, and I think Mike Volkoff can speak could speak to this more uh, adroitly, is these settlement agreements are the product of negotiation. So there's always going to be facts that we are not aware of because uh, both parties have negotiated the final product that will be released to the public. So there may be some more there that we don't know about it. But based upon this public record, we certainly don't see the kind of active involvement uh, that uh, I think would warrant a penalty. And if we're moving towards something less than uh, uh, – willful misconduct, I think the, uh, the DOJ and SCC and indeed here, the treasury department really need to articulate for the chief compliance officer what the line is. Cause we've never had a prosecution where some, a chief compliance officer was negligent. And the first time we do, I think that's, what's really going to send uh, a shockwave through the compliance community. Cause that means if you simply make a mistake, you could be liable to criminal and or civil sanctions. And, uh, That's something that uh, really would get the uh, attention of the compliance community.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot more bad hombres who are on the list of the DOJ to get before they're going after the CCOs.
0: Well, Jay, you attended a conference last week uh, up in San Francisco, went up north to San Francisco, uh, I suppose how you all would say in uh, California. So uh, why don't you tell us about that experience, how it was for you?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, I w- had the um, pleasure of going up to San Francisco for a one-day SCCE conference, and um, it was good to reconnect with some of my colleagues from the Bay Area, and uh, I wrote a, a blog that I have on LinkedIn called I Left My SCCE Heart in San Francisco, or I Love It When a Plan Comes Together, and um You know, one of the things that I think is very challenging when you put together these conferences is there's such a a lead time. Sometimes it's, you know, anywhere from a year to six months. And I'm always impressed by the people who put these conferences together that they have the uh, ability to look within their crystal ball and put together uh, a very timely presentation. And these were, you know, this is the way that I – um interpreted what we learned in San Francisco last Friday. And, uh, we had a real interesting, um, presentation by, uh, the FBI and Stanford research Inc. And they really, um, special agent, supervisor, special agent, Ryan party, uh, took a look at, you know, what is out there with the whole want to cry thing. And it was just, you know, um, it wasn't somebody kind of droning on about this is what you have to do, but this is really, uh, right up front in the news. So, uh, I'm sure a lot of people went home and, uh, changed their passwords and made sure that they had virus protection, uh, that cyber th- threats and defense, um, discussion group just, uh, then morphed into a discussion about the Yates memo a year later. And we had the perspective of uh, current U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California, Brian Stretch, and then, uh, Stephanie Yonikora, who used to be, uh, a DOJ, um, prosecutor in the, uh, Southern California region. And now she's a partner at Ogden Lovells. And, um, both of them were just, uh, very candid with their remarks about, you know, what we've learned uh, from the Yates memo and what we've seen over the last year with the Pirate Program. And uh, somebody from the audience quipped that uh, it may not be known as the Yates memo for very much longer, that uh, maybe somebody in the government might want to change the name of that. Uh, After that thing, we uh, moved on to a couple uh, presentations that kind of dovetail with our first story, uh, we looked at data science investigations and privacies, and um, two of our colleagues, uh, Sue Gong and Paul Sturette, uh led that discussion. And again, it touched upon AI and how you can really use uh, different data streams to uh, operationalize your um, compliance. And then there was a presentation from uh, PwC and Microsoft about how Microsoft is actually uh, using this to come up with a piece of software that compliance professionals can use. And the uh, concluding um, uh, panel that was put on was something that was called Soft Skills and Tips for Success for the Compliance and Legal Professionals. And this was led by Grace Kendrick and Len Shen, who is uh, Visa's Chief Compliance Officer. And um, as I know in my story, it was the... Uh, the last session of the day, which always can be a little bit challenging with, uh, people's stomachs grumbling and everybody getting ready to make the last, uh, train and plane out. And this was probably one of the the most enjoyable sessions of the day. And they talked about, you know, the soft skills that you need to, uh, succeed as a CCO. And also, um, Grace actually took the audience through, uh, Ah, uh, mindfulness uh, meditation. So this is something that uh, you know maybe might seem a little bit new agey because we were in San Francisco. But uh, I'm really looking forward to the upcoming conference in Vegas this fall, because the uh, Sunday before the conference officially starts, there's going to be a whole day of uh, these soft skills. And I think uh, you know we are, we may all have a great message, but a lot of it depends on how we deliver that message. And then also how we interpret the message being received. So I think this is a uh, really innovative programming from SCCE. And I was uh, glad to get a preview of it last Friday. And I'm uh, hungry for more of it at the fall conference.
0: Jay, what was the attendance at this event?
1: Um, and we had probably about 75 people. So for a one day uh, conference, that's a pretty good turnout. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there's just no substitute for being able to interact with people in person. And, uh, you know, lots of folks that we knew each other both via LinkedIn, but it was, you know, even great just to have a two or three-minute conversation and see how people are doing and, and where they're moving and what kind of challenges that they're uh, facing on a daily basis.
0: Did the um... So... Um, Was the panel draw? I mean, uh, while I would have expected most of the people would be from San Francisco or the Bay Area, did you draw others from Los Angeles or other uh, domiciles?
1: Um, Yeah, there are a few people from out of town, but the the majority of the folks were either there from um, uh, the city or Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, uh, I I know there was a large attendance of people there from PG&E, so they were based in the Bay area. So, you know, when you can do a one day trip or more, more effectively like a one or two hour drive, I think that's, um, you know, what the beauty of having one of these uh, local conferences are like. And then I think the key is, is that, you know, not only is it once a year, but when you have your local groups, like you have Gerber in Houston, you know, you're able to get together either on a monthly or a quarterly basis. And I think that's really, uh, you know, gives continuity to the connection between the compliance community.
0: So, Jay, next up, we had a, an article in the um, uh, Sam Rubenfeld at the uh, Risk and Compliance Journal noted a speech by Trevor McFadden uh, down in Brazil. And we've linked both Sam's article and uh, the full text of the speech in the show notes. But uh, in it, he announced that the Department of Justice will begin to embed uh, Department of Justice prosecutors overseas to uh, facilitate this additional uh, internationalization of both enforcement and uh, investigation uh, Sam noted in his article that there had been a 150% increase in the number of annual requests from foreign prosecutors seeking U.S.-based evidence to support bribery and corruption investigations, while in the same time frame there was a 75% jump in U.S. requests from its foreign partners. So pretty clearly the uh, um, internationalization effort is is moving forward. Um, Having a a U.S. prosecutor in uh, the United Kingdom I think it's going to really move this forward. And if I could really use this, Jay, as a way to uh, introduce the release of uh, my new book that came out this week. It was premiered at Compliance Week. It was published by Art Publishing, which is a sister company to Compliance Week. And uh, one of the key themes that – or the title of the book is 2016, the year in corporate FCPA enforcement. And one of the key themes that I saw from last year was really just that. Uh, But the book is certainly more than that. It reviews all of the corporate enforcement actions. I take it on a chronological basis. I also talk about the pilot program, uh, DOJ uh, pronouncements and enforcements, uh, excuse me, pronouncements throughout the year, uh, but particularly in the fall of 2016, how last year was really a year for the record books. And of course, uh, lots of lessons learned from the compliance uh, perspective, which is really what I try to be as the, uh, the nuts and bolts blogger guy. Um, so very pleased to announce that. Uh, you can pick it up uh, at ARC Publishing, and I'm going to link to that uh, in the show notes Um, And, Jay, all of that really leads to uh, what we really needed to talk about today, which, of course, is that the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers are meeting in the NBA finals, as it should be, I would note, but for the third straight time. And for those not familiar with the uh, NBA or perhaps even those who are familiar with the NBA, this is the first time in the history of the NBA We've had two teams in three consecutive years meet in the finals. And when we were uh, visiting in the green room before today's podcast, Jay, we, uh, we both really uh, at, at some point had thought, well, gosh, didn't the Lakers and Celtics in the 60s meet every year? And what about in the 80s? And that's kind of what we and I think the sports world remembers, but it turns out that's not correct. Uh, so – um, I am very excited about this. Uh, uh, I love the thing I love most about sports is sustained greatness, and when you can do fo fo fo, as uh, Moses Malone would say, when Philadelphia swept all the way to its championship back in nineteen eighty-two, um, we've got the um, Warriors. Faux foe, 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 getting to the finals. We've got the Cavaliers, I think, uh, foe, foe, foe one, uh, getting to the, uh, to the finals. Uh, uh, I thought Bo- Boston uh, was turned out to be a little more interesting series than, uh, than I thought people uh, uh, thought in, in a lot of different ways. But uh, now we've got the, the two best, and I don't think anybody can dispute we have the two best teams in the NBA. And uh, I certainly am more than happy to share uh, where I think this is going to go. But uh, you're a, you know, uh, a homer. Uh, You're not the world's biggest Celtics fan, but they are the Boston Celtics. So, of course, that means you are a fan. So, really, where did uh, what did you think about the Celtics? Uh, How are you feeling about the the, hate the Cavs and want the the Warriors to win? Or uh, are you going to stick stick your eastern U.S. roots and, and really pull for the Cavs?
1: I'm uh, I'm going to choose to uh, to not make a choice. I think uh it's very interesting that your two finalists are the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So when you talk about uh in the NBA's past you talk about marquee matchups. Um one wouldn't necessarily think that it is a marquee matchup just based on the cities and the, and the ratings and who's going to be involved. But I think, uh, you know, to your point about them both really blazing through the uh, earlier rounds of the playoffs, uh, we have the two best teams out there. Uh, Golden State is very good defensively. And, you know, their o- offense was augmented this year with, um, you know, Kevin Durant coming aboard. And, uh, you know, Cleveland's been all about, Uh, saving their strength and reserving their uh, um, abilities to be able to compete at a high level in the finals. So uh, I think this is either a six or a seven game series, and I, I, I think you've got the two best teams meeting each other. So it almost makes sense that, you know, three years in a row we're doing this, and your point is that this is something that the Bulls didn't do The Celtics didn't do. The Lakers didn't do. So I'm uh, looking forward to some good basketball.
0: So the uh, really one thing that's come up this series, uh, or rather the NBA playoffs, is the subject of uh, players being uh, overtaxed, players being tired, fresh legs. Uh, You know, what happened, for instance, to the Houston Rockets when they lost to uh, San Antonio Spurs, Game uh, six uh, in Houston, where they were just completely uh, annihilated, uh, or game five, I should say, uh, where they were completely annihilated by the Spurs. And did, did they just simply run out of gas? Um, did that start in game five, conditioning? Lots of issues that you typically don't see. I mean, I think when... Uh, When you think of basketball, you think of Michael Jordan with 104 fever, having uh, one of the greatest playoff games ever, taking fluids on the sideline, and you didn't see him worried about uh, tired legs, dead legs, or any other kind of legs other than Jordan legs. Uh, And that's sort of what we expect of our professionals. Uh, uh, In game uh, three, I think, um, when Boston won – uh, LeBron James had uh, one of his worst playoff games ever, and he's, he's had a couple of bad playoff games. Is that just because he had a bad game? Was he tired? Was he sick? Um, does he have some nagging injury? Obviously, um, Isaiah Thomas, uh, just uh, pr- from a personal tragedy standpoint, losing his sister uh, is uh, was something that uh, struck everyone. But what we didn't know is he had a torn hip. And he played in the Washington series uh, at the end, uh, injured. And he um, uh, was injured so badly he had to withdraw from playing in the, the Cleveland series. And how did that impact? How does that impact uh, the Celtics going forward? Um, and then uh, is, um, is LeBron tired? Uh, is he going to be tired, or the Warriors fresher now because of foe, 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 and sweeping everybody? Or are they going to be rusty the first game? Is uh, is there a delicate balance between having too much rust versus um, being tired? So uh, it's going to be interesting. The um, uh, the Warriors, I think, uh, were the best team last year, uh, but they lost in the finals. They had you know seventy three wins, greatest win ever uh and uh, a Draymond Green uh intentional foul uh call throwing him uh, out of a game uh i think cost them the finals last year so they're going to you know get motivated revenge uh on the Cavs or did they just simply get better by getting one of the three top players in the league Kevin Durant to come over and play with them so um so you're did uh, uh did you make a prediction uh
1: of uh, Cleveland winning this, Jay? No. No. I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to be. Uh, a Warriors gonna in gonna seven. Le- I'm going to be left coast and go Warriors in six.
0: Warriors and six. Well, uh, you know, I'm feeling a foe, 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 foe going. So uh, I think the uh, uh, Warriors are highly motivated. I think they're rested. And I'm predicting a sweep. Really, really. So okay, uh,
1: the so, only downside is that you and I won't be able to take in a game at Shelley's like we do sometimes when we're in D.C. around this time of the year.
0: Well, that's that's true, but um, um, Mrs. Compliance Evangelist has to go to England, so uh, I'm going to be batching it next week, so I'll be able to uh, to uh, rock out to some serious basketball
1: with your 88 inch TV. How big is that thing?
0: uh yeah it's big <laughs> it's nice so uh so anyway well jay uh, i think that kind of wraps up uh the week for may uh ending may 26th uh, we should note we're recording this on the friday before memorial day so everyone have a great memorial day weekend have a safe memorial day weekend and uh, jay you want to take us home
1: sure so on behalf of tom fox the compliance evangelist and myself jay rose and Mister Monitor. We'd like to thank you for spending your time and taking a look at the FCPA week that was for the week ending May 26, 2017. Have a great Memorial Day and be safe.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again for next week's episode. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly podcast in compliance. Also, if you have any questions you'd like us to take a look at, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Have a safe and wonderful Memorial Day weekend.